And if you would please this morning open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52. And of course, we are taking a break here from our study in Revelation. We've gotten through chapter 10. And so we've hit the pause button at least for a few weeks here, especially during the Easter season, to focus on the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the year 381, Gregory of Nazianzus, maybe not one of the fathers you're familiar with in the early church, but he made great contributions, especially in the area of the Trinity. So he studied off in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He said this about Jesus of Nazareth. He said, He began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. He ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty, yet he is the living water. Jesus was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is the king. Jesus was accused of having a demon, yet he cast out demons. Jesus wept, yet he wipes away our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, yet by his death, he destroyed the power of death. Gregory of Nazianzus is highlighting for us the sheer irony of the Son of God who came to save us. To say that Jesus is the most glorious person to ever inhabit human flesh is still an understatement. Yet the most glorious is still the most despised in a sin-fallen world. But through being the most despised, Jesus Christ, our Savior, became the most exalted. And that is why Jesus told his disciples leading up to his crucifixion, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. What is a little grain of wheat? What is a little seed? It's really nothing much to look at. It's small, basically ugly, really. But you give that seemingly insignificant seed the opportunity to sprout and to grow large and beautiful, and it becomes something fruitful and nourishing. So Jesus Christ, the despised servant, gave himself in death. He was planted in a tomb to break forth blossoming and nourishing, offering new life to those who would receive him by faith. And when we embrace him, the Holy Spirit grafts us into him and we become one with Christ, deriving our life from him. We the vine and uh, we the branches and he the vine, just like he says in John 15. Every Lord's day truly is resurrection day. We, we, we meet on the first day of the week because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this day. But there's a special time of year when we remember in particular the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection. This day, Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, styled as an Israelite king on his way to his coronation. 
But he has already told his disciples at least three times by now, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and rise again on the third day. So the path that he rides as he enters Jerusalem through the cries of the people, Hosanna, Hosanna, salvation, salvation has come. This path that he's on is a path that leads through the valley of the shadow of death but comes out of the valley into glory. This is the path of the exalted servant. And the prophet Isaiah describes this path actually in a song with five glorious stanzas. And each song, uh, or each, each stanza, I should say, is three verses in our Bible, starting at the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and then the 12 verses of chapter 53. And this points to our salvation hundreds of years before Christ actually arrives. In this point in salvation history, God has not yet revealed that the person being described in Isaiah 52 and 53 is the Lord Jesus. You know what he's called in this this song? He's simply called the servant, the servant of the Lord, an unlikely title for the Lord of the universe, merely a servant, a slave, basically. But Isaiah writes several songs about the servant in Isaiah. Some of you know this. Back in Isaiah 49, there's a song about the servant that says he'll be rejected by men, yet he'll bring salvation to the world, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. That was unheard of in the Jewish thinking. In chapter 50, Isaiah sings of the servant's obedience to God, though he will be rejected by his people. This song that we're looking at today and next Lord's Day, Lord willing, is more familiar to us. It begins at the end of Isaiah 52. And here we find the death and resurrection of this exalted servant. And I'll tell you what it does for us this morning. It leads us to worship. And it leads us to do what this text does. It leads us to exalt the Lord. It also reminds us who we are. And it also calls us to love our Savior and to give our lives to be used by Him and... It leads us to imitate him. So I'd like to begin by reading this servant song here in Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. In this first stanza, this opening three-verse stanza, we hear God the Father speaking about his servant. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were as astonished as many... Were ast- as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human recognition, human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. That's from God the Father's perspective. In the next three stanzas, Isaiah sings the song from the perspective of the people the servant came to save, from Israel's perspective. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And finally, we come to the last stanza where we return to how God the Father regards the servant once again. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Together, these five stanzas proclaim to us Christ, the exalted servant. And what I'd like to do both today and next Lord Day is just follow the contours of this song. Taking two of the stanzas this morning, three of the stanzas, next Lord Day, no formal outline. Let's just work through the text and see what the Lord is teaching us in these stanzas. Back to the first stanza in chapter 52, starting with verse 13. The Bible says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This means that he will effectively accomplish all that the Father has called him to do. He will perfectly finish the task. He will complete the job that he takes up. And then Isaiah says, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, the Hebrew grammar is very precise here. There's an ordering of events. Literally, it could read, he shall be high, then he shall be lifted up, then he shall be exalted. It's a threefold progression of the exaltation of the servant. And you can't study this very closely without seeing here some form of the prophecy about the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word high is a Hebrew word commonly translated raised. So when Jesus Christ arose bodily out of the grave, he was vindicated with the omnipotent evidence that he was indeed the very Son of God. He was who he claimed to be. And then he was lifted up in the ascension to take his seat at the right hand of the Father where he remains greatly exalted as we know these words ringing in our ears 
from Philippians 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want you to notice here, this song begins with the Father exalting the Son, His servant, lifting Him up in the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation, foreshadowing the end result of the servant's ministry. But then after that, the song turns because the speaker in the stanza, God the the Father, makes an observation about this exalted servant that no one could have expected. And this observation is no doubt puzzling to the Jews who are reading this prophecy. In fact, to this day, and I don't have notes to talk about this, but it's very interesting. If you study what the lost Jewish nation believes about this chapter, you would read it and say, why can't they see that this was the Messiah? They don't. They interpret it as something about themselves, and they miss it altogether. Because how could the Messiah be described like he's about to describe him? He says in the next line, as many were astonished at you. I had trouble reading this a few moments ago. Did you notice that? But the sentence breaks off. It's not completed. In fact, the ESV here gives the the idea of that by putting this long dash. What does this mean? Well, the you here refers to the nation of Israel. God is saying, just as many were astonished at you, O Israel, my people... What could he be talking about? Well, probably when I judged your nation and you were decimated by the Assyrians and carried away from your homeland, because this has already happened as Isaiah is writing this prophecy. And later on, after Isaiah, the rest of the nation would fall to the Babylonians and Jerusalem would be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed. Isaiah is warning about them now, uh, warning about that now. He's saying, you know, look at what happened to your brothers and sisters in the 10 northern tribes. The same thing is going to happen to you if you don't repent and turn to the Lord. So as many as were astonished at you, O Israel, so you will be astonished at this servant. The word astonished could mean appalled, dismayed. Why would they be appalled at God's servant? Well, we keep reading. Notice his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The appearance of the servant would cause people to step back in astonishment, not because his appearance was so glorious, that's what they were thinking, but because it is so shocking, horrifying. The Jewish nation was looking for this glorious, beautiful figure to come in power and glory and rescue them, but instead, this is what they got. A servant marred beyond human resemblance. His form marred beyond that of the children of mankind. It doesn't necessarily mean, as as, as some, I think, try to teach in this passage, that Jesus Christ suffered more than any other human did in his crucifixion. But it means, except when you talk about the fact that he took on all the sins of the world and God the Father, uh, in, in a sense, turned his back on the Son. That's a wonderful doctrine to, to think about it, but it's horrifying at the same time. But as, but as far as his physical suffering, it's not trying to say that he was suffering more than anybody ever suffered under torturous death, but it means that he was disfigured. His appearance 
that is his face and his form, the rest of his body. It was so bruised and broken and bloody. This is what they did to our Savior when they crucified him on the cross. He no longer looked human. But through this disfigurement, look at verse 15, he shall sprinkle many nations. Somehow, through the bloody disfiguring of the servant, many nations would be sprinkled. Now, what does sprinkling have to do with anything? Well, in Leviticus 14, a leper is pronounced clean after being sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. In Numbers 8, there is a sprinkling of the water in the cleansing rite of the Levitical priests. In Numbers 19, those who have come into contact with the dead are not pronounced clean until they are sprinkled. So in the same way, it would be through this marring or disfigurement that he would purify the unclean to sprinkle or cleanse those who were dead in sins. The nation of Israel may not have realized it when the prophet was penning the words of the song, but the sprinkling, the cleansing, this is what they desperately needed. They were not looking for a servant, though. I mean, who puts their hope in a servant? They were looking for a king, a powerful king, who could unite them and lead them to victory against their enemies. Not a servant who gets himself killed so torturously he's not even recognizable. But to Israel's chagrin, their own kings had been somewhat of a disappointment. If you look at the kings that Isaiah served underneath, every one of them from Jeroboam onward in that part of the nation uh, was, was not a really good king that would be able to sit on the throne and bring in righteousness for all eternity. Jeroboam, of course, in the, the northern tribes, none of the kings. And you realize this? When you read through the kings, none of the kings following Jeroboam were good kings. They're all evil kings. But in the kings of Judah that Isaiah ministered under, it was sort of a mixed bag. Isaiah ministered under Uzziah. That's the one mentioned in Isaiah 6. In the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah was a distant king, but he died. Remember why? He forced himself into the temple and insisted on taking over the priest's responsibility to offer sacrifice. And so God struck him with leprosy, and he died. Uzziah's son, Jotham, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he never dared to enter the temple during Uzziah's lifetime. Ahaz's son, Jotham, Jotham's son, Ahaz, was wicked he even participated in child sacrifice. Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, surprisingly was a good king, but he had to struggle to know how to trust the Lord. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, rebelled against the Lord, and it was under his reign that history says Isaiah was killed by being sawn in two in a hollow log. These are the kings of Judah. These are some of the better kings of Judah. So these kings were far from perfect, strong kings who could bring salvation, who could lead God's people to deliverance, even though they looked desperately for this kind of a king. But their most desperate need was not a mere political figure who could rescue them from Assyria or Babylon, or perhaps one who could resolve their domestic crises. Their most desperate need was internal. They needed a savior to rescue them from themselves someone to remove their offense before a holy God and take away their sins. And they're horrified in this song. 
that the person who arrives claiming to be the one that they had always hoped for is disfigured like this. I'll tell you, there's a big, a really good parallel to our situation today. You would think by listening to the news media that the way our problems are going to be solved is going to be through a political leader or maybe somebody who comes up with some great medical idea or maybe somebody who comes up with a great social idea. And if we just had the right government leader or the right scientific discoveries, or we learn to tolerate everyone, right, or affirm everybody's viewpoint, we would have this brighter world. And we know as believers in Christ, it's a big lie. There is no ruler, no government, no president, no scientist, no doctor, no philosopher, no university professor. In fact, I would add, there is no religious leader who can rescue us from our greatest need. It is only through this sprinkling by a disfigured servant that not only Israel, but the nations will be cleansed. Did you notice that in this song? The servant comes from Israel, but he sprinkles many nations. That's the Gentiles. I'm thankful for that, by the way, because I am one. Most of you are too, if not all. And as the first stanza concludes, I want you to notice that focus, the focus shifts to these other nations and their response to this servant. Notice what he says. Kings, that's of other nations, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, for kings to shut their mouths means they have nothing to say. They are in thoughtful silence or they are suffering from the same astonishment that Israel is suffering from in back in verse 14. Why are they in shocked silence? What are they quiet about? Because they have seen something that they had not been told before or they're considering or dwelling on something they have not heard before. Something they learn about the servant leaves them dumbfounded, standing back in shocked silence. What is that something that they have learned? What is that truth that leaves them utterly speechless? It is this wonderful, mysterious truth that unfolds for us in the rest of the song. Isaiah is setting us up for the rest of the stanzas. How can humility blossom into glory? How can death produce salvation? That moves us to the next stanzas. And we'll just take this next one and we'll finish with stanza two this morning. This stanza shifts from God's perspective to Israel's perspective. And Isaiah includes himself in this perspective. He says this, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, who would believe the report about this servant? And Isaiah answers looking uh, for, uh, the, the answer I should say that Isaiah is looking for when he asks the question, who has believed our report about the servant? The answer he's looking for is, No one, no one would believe this. Not at first. The nation of Israel themselves would not even believe it. And this stanza will show us that Israel missed him. They didn't recognize him. The only way that they were going to recognize him is through divine revelation. Some of you were here last week and you remember we looked at the the term, the mystery of God in Revelation 10. A mystery is truth that is unknowable until God decides to reveal it. 
It's truth that is never even mentioned in the Old Testament and then finally shown us in the New. Or it could be truth that's prophesied in the Old Testament and not even the prophets understand really what it means until God decides to reveal it through his apostles in the New Testament. This is why the first question in verse 1 is followed by a second question. You see the second question? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Only by direct revelation from God would the world know that what his servant was doing in being disfigured was actually rescuing or restoring falling humanity. And that's why we can't really fault those who do not know Christ as Savior, who do not have the revelation uh, of, of the Spirit opening up for them the word of God to, to, to read this text and not really know what is going on. Israel themselves didn't understand what was going on in the first century. I need to call your attention to the way Isaiah refers to the servant in the second question. You see it there? The arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is a powerful Old Testament metaphor. Of course, God has no body. God is a spirit. But the arm of God, is a metaphor that speaks of his power. And not only his power, but also his presence to actually be with his people and deliver them. If we were to look back a few pages to Isaiah chapter 51, you can turn there if you'd like to. It's just a couple pages back, unless you want to just look at the screen. In Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 10, Isaiah says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? He's calling attention to the fact that God revealed his arm for Israel back in the day when he led his children across the Red Sea. Rahab is a nickname for uh, for Egypt here. In the Exodus, the Lord was truly present with his people, bearing his arm to save them. In fact, you keep reading in Isaiah 52, verse 10, he says uh, that he looks forward to the day when the Lord will once again make bare his holy arm, resulting in the salvation of our God. It's a metaphor saying that God is going to be strong. And before all the eyes of the nations and all the ends of the earth, they will see the salvation of God. So when we arrive at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, the arm of the Lord has really come. The servant who is spoken of in the psalm, what Isaiah says is he is the arm of the Lord, the personal presence and power of God come to save. In the past, the arm of the Lord was invisible. God acted in in mighty power for his people But he himself was not revealed in bodily form. His work was like the wind. Bobby Davis talked to us about this a couple of Wednesday nights ago. You know the wind is there, and it's moving and working, but you can't see it. But though no man has seen God at any time, John 1.18 tells us, the only begotten Son, he has made him known. The Son is the arm of the Lord. I love what Alec Motyer says in his really good commentary on Isaiah He says that the appearance of the servant was not another matter of tracing events to an invisible cause, but a matter of seeing a person, the servant, 
and recognizing that this is the Lord himself, not just a man who is held up by the Lord's arm, but the very arm itself come to save. And yet, as we see in verse 2, Israel placed no value on him when he came. It says he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There are several reasons, Isaiah says, that Israel missed the Lord's servant when he came. They didn't recognize it, and they put him on a cross. And before we're too harsh with Israel this morning, we've got to recognize the fact that we would have probably missed it too. We would not have done much better if we had been in their place. We would have missed him for the same reasons Israel missed him. Why wasn't he recognizable? Why didn't they see that, that he was the son of God? Because what we... We miss what God is doing when we look only for what we expect, when we look only with our human eyes. If we only look for what we expect to take place according to our wisdom, we will often miss what God is doing. Remember what Israel was looking for. They're looking for a great king, a mighty conqueror. But there was seemingly nothing special about this man when he came. First of all, there seemed to be nothing special about his origin. That's why they missed him. The text says, for he grew up before him like a young plant. This is an expression of a, a metaphor that means uh, the family tree, like a human family tree growing up. To all appearances, the servant was a normal human being. He was from a poor ghetto-like town called Nazareth. Remember the question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary and his brothers and sisters, they're here too, right? Isn't this him? Is that it? What's so special about him? This can't be the Messiah. Messiah's not supposed to come from Galilee. Look, check it out for yourself. This can't be the guy. Then there was the constant rumor surrounding his ministry that really Jesus was the product of Mary, who had been unfaithful during her period of betrothment, uh, and probably slept with a Roman soldier. This was swirling around in his ministry. And in fact, the Pharisees flat out accused Jesus of being born of fornication in John 8. You read that passage. They say to him, we know who your father is. And Jesus responds very graciously on that occasion. He tells them, well, your father is the devil. <laughs> and the lust of your father you will do. You could never one-up Jesus in a conversation no matter what you said to him. But the people of Israel and the Pharisees in particular, they could treat Jesus like this because he didn't seem to have any special origin. Secondly, there appeared to be nothing special about his status. In fact, Isaiah says he's like a root out of the dry ground. So if we were to picture the Lord Jesus as a family tree growing up, what kind of plant would he be? If we had to picture this with art form. Would we imagine him to be this large, flourishing, leafy, strong, majestic oak with mighty branches? Or maybe a towering cypress or maybe a, a wonderful rose bush, the rose of Sharon? But how did he appear? Isaiah says a root, a sprig, a mere shoot. In fact, it's a particular word that means it grows up from the same root system as the tree, but it's not even part of the tree itself. It is growth on the tree that is trimmed or cut away as if it's not important. That's the word used to describe him. They also didn't recognize him because there didn't seem to be anything special about his appearance, his physical appearance. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Form refers to whether or not he was well-built. Majesty has to do with how impressive he seemed when you met him in a crowd and talked to him. Beauty refers to whether or not he was handsome. So here it says the servant has no form, no majesty, no beauty. If you were choosing a leader, wouldn't you look for some of these qualities? I mean, why would you want to choose someone who is so unattractive? I mean, leaders are good-looking and powerful. If if they're going to lead large movements, they're dramatic, and, and they draw people to them. Jesus appeared to be none of these things. In fact, it was impossible for anyone to think that this could be the Lord come to save us. When I read this, I'm struck with the comparison between Jesus and the first kings of Israel such uh, uh, was, was the way they were thinking about their king. Saul was this impressive king by all human standards, but his heart was not with the Lord. And when Samuel was sent to anoint the second king, remember, all of David's brothers were presented to the prophet. And he was thinking, well, surely there's Eliab, this big, towering, strong guy. Surely, Lord, this is your king. And the Lord said, nope, nope. That's not him. That's not him. That's not him. And David is missing. David, nobody thought he would be chosen. He's out keeping the sheep. And the Lord said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. And Jehovah chooses David, the humble shepherd, and rejects Saul, the proud monarch. David becomes the anointed one, a man whom Jehovah calls his son. And it was David, not Saul, who then faced Goliath, the enemy of God, and he was victorious. And it was David to whom the Lord came in 2 Samuel 7. We heard this passage this morning. And said to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In 2 Samuel 7, David says, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, I can't let you do that because you're a man of war, but I am so moved. David, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to keep somebody on your throne forever. And that's why we're going through Revelation right now. We're working up to that great time when Christ comes on that white horse with his army behind him and establishes that kingdom, somebody to be on David's throne. In the same way, Jesus, the one whom even his own people would not have chosen, he was God's ultimate anointed king who has already conquered death and Satan. Nothing more needs to be done. And one day he will finish the conquering with his visible kingdom. Verse 3, however, offers a fourth reason why the servant was unrecognizable. There seemed to be nothing about his influence that was impressive. In fact, Jesus' own people ultimately were not drawn to him They were repulsed by him. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I mean, this verse is astounding. It's, It's not talking about Jesus on the cross yet, by the way. There's been a foreshadowing of that in the first stanza. This is about how Jesus appeared during his earthly ministry. And it begins and ends with the despising of the servant, by the people he came to save. To despise here means to dismiss as nothing, to mock at, to dismiss out of hand. Jesus would not have a dynamic following. In fact, at one point in his ministry, many of his disciples turned back and walked no more with him. 
In fact, by the end of his ministry, Jesus had a net loss of followers. And when they arrested him in the garden, most of those who were still clinging to him scattered into the night. I mean, if they had had a church growth conference back in Jesus' day, he might have been invited to attend. He would have got the flyer in the mail and everything. But they would not have had him as a speaker. They would have thought he needed a lot of help to build up his group. This is how he appeared. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Throughout his ministry, he was acquainted with sickness and disease and hardship and poverty and brokenness and disability and pain because he ministered to people who were broken with pain and hardship, the riffraff of society. And how do men regard that crowd? How could he have anything to offer in the way of deliverance if it appears that he needs delivering himself? I mean, these are the kinds of people he hangs out with. Why do you eat with publicans and sinners, they asked him. He doesn't fit any of the ethos of the arm of the Lord. He's treated like an outcast of society, and he experiences what outcasts experience, avoidance. The important people of the day, including the religious leaders, dismissed him. And so he was one as from whom men hide their faces. They turn their faces away. Nothing to see here. They do not esteem him. Esteem is an accounting term. It means to reckon or value something. They did not look at him. They summed him up and looked somewhere else. He came unto his own, John's gospel says, and his own did not receive him. John Oswald writes in his commentary on Isaiah, the Christian thinks inevitably of Jesus Christ, a baby born in the back stable of a village inn. This would shake the Roman Empire? A man quietly coming to the great preacher of the day and asking to be baptized. This is the advent of the man who would be heralded as the savior of the world? No, Oswald writes, this is not what we think the arm of the Lord should look like. We were expecting a costumed drum major to lead our triumphal parade. Our eyes are caught and satisfied by superficial splendor. This man, says Isaiah, will have none of that. As a result, our eyes flicker across him in a crowd, and we don't even see him. His splendor is not on the surface. And those who have no inclination to look beyond the surface will never even see him, much less pay him any attention. I wonder, as I've studied this week in this passage, if Jesus were to appear today, as he did two millennia ago, would he be recognized by those who call uh, themselves his followers? I think that's a question that we need to ponder. But I think there's a more urgent question than that. Would someone who knew Jesus in first century Palestine recognize Jesus in us? Because that's what Christian means, right? One who is like Christ. You know it's possible to be saved by God and know that you are, as we say, on your way to heaven, that you're going to be with the people of God because once you are saved and God purchase you with his blood, he never lets go of you, to, to, to actually have salvation and yet not be living like a Christian, going through a time period in your life when, when somebody looks at you, they don't think of Jesus Christ. That's what Christian means. It means to look like Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean merely trying to do the right things and keep a good testimony with your behavior before others, although that's very important and we need more of that, not less of it. 
but you can look the part of a Christian in the eyes of your Christian peers and still not have the mind of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, I think, cuts right to the heart of the matter when he says back in Philippians 2 again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, think like Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We cannot have the mind of Christ unless we have the mind of a servant. You know what happens when you have the mind of a servant? When you're a servant, you care little or nothing about your origin or your status or your appearance or your influence. Yet we can so easily have an overinflated opinion of ourselves and look down upon others Or we can walk into a congregation like this and think about our status among others rather than looking for needs and how we can serve one another. It can matter too much to us what people think about us. And we can think too highly of our ideals, which causes us to look right past people with seeing no needs, an opportunity for fellowship, an opportunity to show love and mercy. And if we are behaving this way to those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, how are we going to not look past the needs of our community where God has placed our congregation? I am grateful for our church because the Lord appears to be raising up an assembly of believers who want to look past themselves and to one another and to the world where God has placed us. And that the Lord is growing our church not just by adding members, but by adding servants. But if we are going to grow in this way, we have to keep our eyes on Christ. That's not just a a cliche. It's not just a metaphor. It means following his humility, following his graciousness to others, his concern for the Father's will. And we speak and sing of our Savior, and we sing these wonderful hymns about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about our Savior, but we got to remember we're talking about an exalted servant. So if we are truly following him, we need to imitate the heart of a servant. And I would say to you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is central to living out the gospel in our church. It is not an extra. It's central to the unity the Lord Jesus wants to create in the church. It's central to the mission of the church. So we need to pray for love and humility and gratitude and joy and for the grace we need to serve the Father like Jesus did, because he is the exalted servant. And this servant song calls us to worship, but it also calls us to imitate the one we're worshiping. And as we celebrate the salvation he provided through his cross and his resurrection, we need to pray that God gives us the grace to live out the kind of life that Jesus showed to the world so that we can truly present him to the world as he wants the world to see him. Father, we're grateful.